Hi everyone, and welcome back to Dynamine. Yes, this second episode is being released a full year after the first one, but better late than never. I guess really one of the only upsides of the COVID-19 pandemic is that there's actually a lot of time for creating and producing. So I'm currently writing and editing this podcast from my apartment in Vancouver, Canada. I'm actually doing it in the storage closet because that's the only place that has really good sound. So I'm surrounded by camping equipment and chairs and a bunch of sleeping bags and shoes. But anyways, I hope by the time this is released that things will be a lot better worldwide. And if not, I hope that this can provide you something else to think about besides COVID-19 for uh, about a half an hour. My name is Nicole Doucette. I'm a mining engineering graduate from UFT and now a science communicator and podcaster. I created the Dynamine podcast as a podcast about change with stories from the mining industry for the mining industry. If you listened to the first episode, you'll remember it was about the experiences of women in mining, in particular at remote exploration camps. And you can find that first episode on my SoundCloud profile at soundcloud.com slash dynomine, D-Y-N-O-M-I-N-E. So as a woman who worked and very quickly left the mining industry, that first episode was a topic that was really close to my heart. But this topic is just as important to me, actually. As a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I have always been searching for and seemingly unable to find others from this community in the mining industry. As a young queer woman in mining, when I first started out, I was only one of two technical women underground in the mine I was working at and one of the only queer individuals in the entire town I was living in. And I was very, very lonely. I actually quit and left that job after two months because I was, I just really couldn't deal with it. I often wondered to myself, where are all the people like me? I could see them out in the world, out in other industries, but I couldn't seem to find them mining. I felt very alone, and I think that's a really common experience for a lot of queer people in the industry. To some extent, I've used the bush, apart from the fact that I love it, as a place to hide out when I was very unsure of myself when I was younger. And I really was pretty unsure of myself in my 20s. That's Bill. Bill is a structural geologist, now retired. Worked in the industry for roughly 50 years uh, in various capacities, initially in ground geophysics as a contractor or what we used to call as a bush rat. Like many of us in this industry, Bill loved the earth and that's why he started and finished his career in geology. Just love being, walking through the bush, discovering what's under, under a log, discovering what's around the next bend in the river. You know, I grew up near the Scarborough Bluffs and I used to climb down the ravines there all the time when I, on weekends when I wasn't in school. I'd go down to Lake Ontario and go skinny dipping in August when you could do it without freezing. And so from the time I was 10 or 12, I liked being in the bush. And then when I was in first year, I was in university the first time. Somebody I knew at college who had worked the previous summer for uh, a, a geochem contracting firm. He knew I'd done a lot of canoe tripping when I was in my teens and asked me if I wanted to work in the bush for the summer. And I thought, go in the bush and get paid for it? Duh. 
Bill kept working in the bush, mostly running ground geophysical surveys, until he was in his 30s. That's when he met some geologists up in the Yukon who encouraged him to go back to school. So Bill went back to school and got first a bachelor's and then later a master's degree in geology. And that's when Bill became a structural geo. Within a few months after finishing my thesis, went out into the field as a consultant in an underground mine in northern Manitoba and just thought, this is the life. This is what I want to do. It took me about 30 years to figure out what I wanted to do, but, but I finally, finally found my way. <laughs> so I've always loved being in the bush, even from as a child before geology. I learned to put up with the black flies and the mosquitoes and, you know, tromping through a swamp somewhere in northern Ontario or Quebec or whatever and coming across a moose with a rack standing there 50 feet away from you looking at you and it just, it's magic. It's always magic. Bill is also gay. So I struggled with my sexuality for the best part of my 20s. And the bush was a place to hide out. It was safe. It was very important to have that time to grow and become comfortable with who I am. Yes, there was a lot of homophobia around there. Lots of snide comments and jokes and whatnot. I, I just kept under the radar and ignored it. Nobody really would look at me and think that I was gay. So it wasn't something I had to deal with personally. It wasn't like I, I was personally attacked or anything like that, but I knew it was out there. It was a very, very redneck industry. And that was just part of the territory. You know, it's like mapping in the jungle. You have to know that there's snakes and panthers and whatnot out there, and you have to be aware of that and just keep your eyes open and keep your head down, so to speak. For the most part, 95% of the time, I've had good people, I've worked with very good people that I had respect for. They varied from place to place, setting to setting, client to client. So, by and large, I've, I've had a great time in the industry. I miss it now that I'm retired. But I've, I've had a great career. Though Bill did use the bush to hide out, he did eventually come out to his peers. As queer people know, coming out is a huge moment. It's the first moment you're acknowledging who you are to not only the outside world, but you're also confirming it publicly with yourself. Bill actually came out at the height of the AIDS crisis. At one point, I was staying at a motel east of Matheson, and I was in the television room one evening with a couple of other guys from another crew that was staying in the motel. And the news came on and it was announced that Rock Hudson had died. And this one guy, total stranger to me, said to the rest of us in the room, I think all those goddamn faggots should be lined up against a wall and shot. And that hit me. And, and, um, Although I was seizing inside, I very calmly said, if that, if that was your uncle or your brother or your nephew, I don't think he would say that. And he probably, probably picked up the anger in my voice. And he got up and left a few minutes later, and I've never seen him since. But, it, but it, for me, it was like, okay, Bill, this is enough. You know, I'm tired of being lonely in the bush and, and alone and not being able to talk to anybody on a personal level about who I am and what matters to me. And um, so it was a bit of a turning point for me. 
after that, I gradually began to come out to people who uh, I liked personally as well as respected professionally, who were decent people. I didn't make a big issue out of it, I just let them know. Oh, by the way, I won't say the obvious next phrase, those people that I knew respected me and who I respected and had no problems. Uh, it was just not an issue. I remember a few years after that going out to the Roundup and running into friends, of course, out there, which is half the reason you go. My partner at the time was, was waiting for a liver transplant because of, he'd contracted hepatitis B as a child and he was into end-stage liver failure. We were waiting for a transplant. And when I was out at the Roundup, maybe half a dozen people that I'd worked with over the years came up and I had not necessarily told all of these people about me or my partner, but they, they, all, they all came up and asked me how my partner was doing. The word had obviously gotten around in the, out, out there in, in BC. And, and I found that very moving. It kind of blew me away. I still get a bit teary thinking about it. It was, um, you know, there, despite the stories, there are good people out there. Honestly, when I was listening to Bill tell these stories, I was tearing up a bit. And there are a lot of good people out there, and it can be easy to forget that sometimes. So, okay, so Bill came out during the AIDS crisis, which he credits as changing things for a lot of people, and that was inside and outside of the mining industry. A lot of people suddenly realized that they had an uncle or a brother who was sick and was dying. And oh, guess what? He had a live-in partner, and he was gay. And, and... Um, you know, in many cases came out, not always successfully, of course. A lot were rejected. And a lot of partners of people who were dying were rejected by the partner's family, or the, the person's family. So it wasn't always happy. But I would speculate that that changed the attitude of a lot of people in the industry. So while at the height of the plague years, you would hear AIDS jokes up the yin-yang, homophobic comments, that I think that changed, and I think it's changed big time now. People probably learned a lot more than the, they knew about AIDS within their own family and their own circle of friends as a result of those awful, awful plague years. You know, we all lost friends. And some ostensibly straight, previously homophobic people in the industry probably lost family members and friends too. So it's better now. You know, way better than it was. And it's too bad it took plague years to teach so many people that, but it's the way it goes. I asked Bill what kind of things he had heard and experienced throughout his career, and especially during the AIDS crisis. There was always a lot of homophobic slurs around. And they hurt, and they're uncalled for, of course. But they do hurt. There were horrendous AIDS jokes slurs during the plague years, which, which really hurt. And no sentient human being would ever utter that to anybody in a bush camp or anywhere else if they actually thought about it or if they had any, any heart. Those hurt, and especially for people who are young, maybe still haven't worked out their own sexuality yet, have doubts 
are a little bit afraid that they might be gay or they might be lesbian or they might be whatever, queer, still haven't worked it out, those comments can really set people back. And um, I don't think there's any place for them in the world. So the question is, if you're a minority, and in particular a queer minority, what can you do if you're receiving comments like that? I guess the best advice is to people that are on the receiving ends of these things, just learn how to roll with it, let it wash over your back like water off a duck's back or whatever. Don't take them too seriously. When the opportunity comes up in an outside setting to uh, give somebody shit for those kind of comments, as I have done late in, you know, after, after my mid-30s or so on convention floors and whatnot, if somebody ever, ever made an AIDS joke or a, a homophobic slur, I started calling them on it. But by the middle of the plague years or so on and so forth, people were getting called on it more and more. And, and people gradually learned, to, if they still felt that way, to keep their mouth shut in public. You know, we still have a lot of racism in, in, in this country. There's still a lot of racists. For the most part, they learned a long time ago to keep their mouth shut, even if they still are racist at heart. You know, Southwestern Ontario is very racist against blacks in particular. It's got a very rich history, black history because it was a destination point for, for many people coming up on the Underground Railroad. But the racism is still there. It's just muted. But the best you can do is just call people when they make comments like that and then just say, I just lost all respect for you. I'm not interested in carrying on this conversation and walk away. Slowly they learn. It might take a generation, but they learn. And here's Bill's advice for other young queer people in the community now. Be strong. Try to keep your sense of humor. Get as much pleasure out of the company that you can that you're in the field. I mean, I've, generally, I've always worked with really interesting and good guys. Uh, I'm going back to the days when there weren't too many women in the bush, of course, because I'm old enough to do that. I used to take a lot of gay fiction in the bush that I would read for 10 minutes at night. And, and if people found that book beside my bed, sleeping bag in the, in the morning someday, fine. That was their problem. So I had 10 minutes a day of reading about a completely different world that was my world, not the straight world. That kept me sane. I really enjoyed speaking to Bill. He told a lot of great stories and he was extremely heartfelt, which I'm sure you could feel too. So thank you, Bill, for sharing your story with all of us. As Bill shared in his stories, it can be really, really difficult to be a young queer person, and even more so when you don't feel represented or safe in a community that you work in. And one part of that is visibility. When you can see, even if you don't know them, other people like you at the company you work in or at the industry you work in, then you sort of know that there are people like you who can succeed in that same space. And that goes a long way. So I want to ask you, the listener, thinking about the mining industry, how many visibly queer people do you know in mining? Can you count them on one hand? I know that I can. And yes, it's true. Queer people come in all shapes and sizes. But some people specifically represent themselves to the world in a way that acknowledges they are queer. And that visibility really, really helps other queer people know that they can be successful in that same space. So now I want to introduce the next person, who is Alex. I'm of European descent. Approximately 5'7". Short brown hair, brown eyes. I identify as genderqueer, but mostly I appear as almost gender neutral and ambiguous. 
if you first see me on the street, you probably won't know. You would identify me either as a woman or a man in your head and not think twice about it. Alexandria Marcotte is the Vice President Project Coordination at Osisco Mining. She isn't fussy about what pronouns are used, so I'll be using she, her pronouns throughout. As a side note, asking someone what pronouns they prefer is a totally okay question to ask, and though it may feel a little bit awkward or strange to ask someone that if you aren't used to it, I can say that for most queer people, it's very appreciated that you are taking the time to do so. So, anyways, back to Alex. She's worked in exploration for about 12 years and spent a lot of time in North America before she landed a corporate role in Toronto. And she's a big deal because she's a visibly queer executive at a well-known mining company, which has led to some interesting life experiences for her. I find, because I present as genderqueer, like I identify that, but I also present like that. And it's fun. (laughs) Restaurants and airports are where I'm most frequently mistaken for a man. And then the panic of the server or whoever as they real I answer and they can tell by my voice that I'm not. So then there's like that moment of panic. So just by being me, I force people to confront that there is difference in this world. And I can see the awkwardness when people look at me and in my interactions with them, particularly if they assume one thing and then realize a few seconds or even minutes into the interaction that they made that mistake. I think human nature is, we like things simple, red, green blue, yellow, man, woman. And when people start to blur those lines and people haven't thought that through and those implications, you start to confront things for them that are very deeply held truths for them. And nobody likes to have those things questioned or confronted. And though Alex may sometimes have unique experiences in public, she hasn't found it has impacted her career at all. She thinks part of this is based on her personality. I'm friendly, but... I'm extremely professional and I don't put up with shit at work ever. So, and I draw those lines very clearly at the start. So if anyone is just trying to bullshit me, it's just, I just don't, I just don't put up with it. But another part of that is her role at the companies she's been in. So I set very clear boundaries and I've, have also usually been in a position of power. So that helps a lot too. When I was working underground, I was one of the beat geologists we work outside of the normal hierarchy of all the guys that work underground and we're technically supervisors. And I joined the mine rescue team. So there was also like, there was layers there that keep me outside of the standard hierarchy that some women get stuck in that make it much harder for them. And then when I was in exploration, I was typically the project manager or one of the most senior geos on site running the project. And now as an executive, it's also another layer of protection. But Alex also thinks that her specific type of visible queerness has led to some advantages at work. I also have seen huge differences in the way I am treated versus the way feminine cisgendered women are treated and the way that feminine queer women are treated. I was trying to find the study that I read about a couple months ago where um, genderqueer or butch lesbians do better at work than feminine ones or even straight feminine women. Alex was able to find the study after the interview. It's an article by Neha Bagri called New Research Confirms the Sexuality Pay Gap is Real, published in January 2017. In the article, Neha refers to research done that indicates that there could be a pay gap when it comes to sexuality. Particularly, it seems queer women could have a smaller pay gap with men than straight women and appear to get promoted faster. So when Alex read this article, it got her thinking. I think to some degree, sometimes the guys think of me as one of the guys. Doesn't mean I'm not excluded, but I think there are some advantages to that. 
I'm not sure I could directly say this has gone right because I'm queer, but a lot of things have not happened to me that like when I was promoted onto the executive, it was an executive that is almost all men and, and the decisions were made by men and it, uh, by being visibly queer, anyone who said, oh, well, she slept her way to the top would have been laughed at. Like, there's no way. Like, like if you know me like, and know the guys I work with, like, you can't make that accusation seriously. But if I was a very good looking cisgendered straight woman, the whisper would happen and some people may believe it. The doubt would be there. Whereas for me, like, that's just... Like, there's no credibility to saying something like that. So I think there, I have, I've been in a position of, that's been advantageous to me sometimes that it was very clear I did it on merit. And I think that the industry is a much bigger problem with feminine than they actually have with queer. This topic is actually discussed a lot in the first episode of this podcast series, so I won't get into more details here, but I'll definitely encourage you to go listen to that first episode to understand more of what Alex is saying and some of the impacts of it on the industry and on the women who work in industry, especially feminine women. So one thing I found was very interesting about Alex's stories were how similar they were to mine. Even though I'm a feminine-presenting, queer-identified woman, I came out to my parents and family for the first time after I had lived in northern Canada, about 60 kilometers away from Timmins. This coincides with Alex's experiences, too. I was closeted when I lived in Timmins. I did not feel comfortable there. I took a hand-to-hand combat class because I find what most men do is they actually try to physically intimidate women. They'll get into their space, they'll puff their chests. And if you watch those interactions, almost always on some level, women are being threatened physically. Um, so when I took the hand, hand-to-hand combat class, I now like, I never feel threatened by anyone. But after I left Timmins, I was always out at work. And I never came out at work. I would just be out. If someone was talking about their spouse or their husband or their wife, I would also talk about my partner or my wife. Like I would just join the conversation. And I think that has helped. And, and that's usually what I, when people ask, I don't know how to come out at work. And it, it's not a secret. If you treat it like a secret, everyone else will. And it becomes gossip. And it can be challenging. I understand that, particularly if you're not out to your family, if you're not out socially, you can't just like be out at work. I understand why some people don't. But if you can, if you don't treat it like it's a big deal or a secret, most people won't either. The important thing is that we can support people in our industry, which includes those who are queer, but also goes beyond that to anyone who feels othered or not in the majority. Alex talks about how she combats this at exploration camps. And when I'm in charge of a camp, I will spend time sitting back and watching how people interact with each other. So instead of me necessarily sitting down and talking with everyone during dinner or lunch, sometimes I just sit by myself and watch how they're interacting. And I would do my best to shield some, particularly the most young, most feminine women from what was going on, or at least let them know they could sit beside me or come talk to me or just set, set up their desk beside mine if they needed to. Sometimes you need to really clearly articulate it to people that there is a safe place that they can, safe place that they can go. Part of that responsibility is on us as queer people in the industry to be out and to provide support for the next generation coming in. But it is a responsibility for everyone in the industry, regardless of your sexual orientation. I think it is a problem for mining is that you have a lot of people that really love it, but just can't, can't stay. Alex and I then talked about diversity and inclusion, which is a big part of most mining companies' values and initiatives now. 
but we do have a ways to go and it's not just a mining specific industry problem. Alex actually did her MBA examining a paper on why diversity programs fail. One of the biggest reasons why diversity programs fail is really because you cannot police what people think or what they do. And if you try to, people will immediately push back. Even if it's like the best thing that could happen, if you tell someone what to do or try to police behavior, people will naturally push back. And I think the only real way forward and what the article also articulates is to pair people with people of diverse backgrounds so that they just get to know people who are queer, know people who are First Nations, get to know people who have, are differently abled. And until you really sit down and get to know them, you don't really challenge those prejudices. And there's no diversity and inclusion training that's going to change that. And because you have such a lack of that representation inside mining, people just aren't exposed to them and those, those attitudes prevail. We also typically work in very rural areas. There's a big difference. If you take Quebec, what the average Montrealer is like versus what the average Val person from a place like Val d'Or would be like. It's, it's a different community that these people grow up in and that they're exposed to. And when you're from a rural area, you're just more likely to not be exposed to things that you're exposed to in urban areas. Whoever's in power socially is typically the largest represented group inside mining areas where it can still be acceptable to make inappropriate jokes. And even though you can do things like have zero tolerance, you still can't change what people think. So even if we fire someone for being blatantly racist towards our First Nations, we've sent a message to everyone else that they just can't be blatantly racist towards the First Nations. Right. They will still be racist, but they just won't express it at work, which still helps to make a safer place. But I promise that First Nations people still know that those people are racist towards them, whether or not they say anything. Because though you can police those very outwards ones, you cannot police microaggressions. Diversity inclusion as a concept goes way beyond mining. It's a problem in mining, but it's not just a problem in mining. It's an entire societal challenge that we have. But there's no reason that we can't be leaders in that space. So I asked Alex what we could do in the mining industry to turn the dial a little bit. I think the first thing we need to do, and this was a big challenge for me because I sat on the committee, the subcommittee for the PDC that drafted the diversity and inclusion guidelines. And we consciously made the decision to really focus on women. And we focused on women like in the workplace, which again, basically translates to cisgendered white women, and then women in the community who are affected by mining programs. And those were really the two things that, that we chose to focus on in the piece, just because of time constraints, budgetary constraints, what can we actually get done? But we definitely ignored the LGBT community. Uh, we ignored people who are differently abled, a lot of minorities that we ignored in that piece. So I think the first thing we need to do is we need to start including that. We actually need to start including that in the diversity and inclusion pieces so that people stop, in mining, people stop associating diversity and inclusion with cisgendered white women. I yes. think that's the first step is to really, is to just get people to learn what and who actually falls under that diversity and inclusion umbrella, I think would be the first step. And then it is about visibility. The visibility part is having people in the industry who are out and in the queer community, and we're showcasing that through panels and by having them in positions of power. So if you are queer and thinking about coming into the industry, or perhaps you're already in it, this is the advice Alex has for you. You're not alone. 
there are other queer people that went before you and never be afraid to get out. You didn't quit. Like if it's that bad and you don't feel safe, like you get out of there. Don't worry about being blacklisted. Like if you stand up and say, look, I left because these issues were coming up because I was queer, you're not going to stay blacklisted. Alex also suggests reaching out to LGBTQ plus organizations like P-Flight Canada if you're having trouble at work. They'll be able to help you with appropriate next steps. But it's not just the responsibility of queer people to advocate for themselves. It's also the responsibility of those in the majority to do their part. I think it's most important to call other people out on inappropriate behavior, whether it's towards queer people or just women or any minority. It's on those groups who are the majority to call each other out. And it doesn't help if someone says something that's inappropriate and you go up to them after and say, hey, what they said to you is really inappropriate. You don't need to be telling that to the queer person. They already know that. You need to be telling the person who said it. Like you, like you need to stand up for that and you need to start creating that space. So a message to all the queers in mining. We are here. We've got your back. Reach out if you need support. You can send me a message at dynomindpodcast, D-Y-N-O-M-I-N-E podcast at gmail.com and I'll get you in touch with one of us. A very, very big thank you to Alex and Bill for allowing me to bombard them with questions. Once again, I'm Nicole Doucette and this is the Dynamine Podcast. Thanks for listening. Theme music is Transmutation by Kara Square under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 unported license. No changes have been made. This episode was written, produced, and recorded by Nicole Doucette.